Hey, welcome again to Cuyahoga Valley Church, especially if you're a guest today. We're so grateful you're here. We hope you have a great morning with us. Welcome to all of you online viewers right now watching. We're glad that you are with us as well. Hey, as a pastor, I often get a front row seat to some of the most amazing life transformations because of Jesus. A lot of your stories, you know, we see people that uh, have come out of uh, healing situations from abuse. There's restored marriages. There's freedom from addiction. People who've gone from just worldly living to godly living because of new life in Christ. And so it's great to sit on the front seat and watch Jesus just do his thing in the lives of other people. But also, as a pastor, I also have to sit on the front row of some of the most horrific and painful experiences a person or a family can experience. Unjust lawsuits, life-altering injuries, messy divorces, abuses of every type, tragic deaths, and heartbreaking diagnoses. You know, over the years, I've been asked, what's been one of the most difficult situations I've ever had to deal with? And years ago, back in California, I had to bury a 16-year-old who was killed by his father. And the events of that situation, I cannot even share here. It's one of the most difficult and dark situations I've been pulled into. It was absolutely awful. Which brings up one of the most significant barriers to people believing in God. It's evil in the world. It's the awful local, national, and global headlines that bombard us, as well as the awful experiences we all experience in life. And in those moments, we typically ask a very difficult but nearly impossible question to answer. And it's the question, why? Why did this happen? Why is ISIS doing what they're able to do? What about the grievous situation in war-torn Syria? Why? Why genocide in South Sudan? Why the bombings and shootings and stabbings and vehicle attacks in the markets and the clubs and the schools? Why are young women and girls kidnapped and sold into sex slavery? Why? And then we start to look at our own lives. Why did this accident happen? Why him? Why her? Why do I have the sickness? Why is my loved one suffering? And for every headline or experience we are aware of, we know there are hundreds, if not thousands, that we are not aware of. See, severe situations sift us. Tragedies test us. Pain breaches our superficial exterior and the little cliches we hide behind. You know, you got to look through the rain to see the rainbow. If life gives you lemons, you've got to make lemonade, you know. Oh, it could be worse. Just let go. Let God, right? All these little cliches. But pain infiltrates deeper. It goes into the deepest places of our souls and reveals our true self. Hardship is the great exposer of what we really believe about life and God, and it tempts us to ask the question, why? Now, we know that ultimately the pain that we see and hear and experience is the result of living in a broken and sinful world. But we are often disappointed with that answer, and we long for a more satisfying explanation. Interesting enough, we don't typically ask why when things are good, right? It's very few times I've ever heard someone say, you know, I just don't know why that good thing happened to me. You know, I don't know why I'm so blessed and why why I get this joy. It's usually when the bad happens that we start to ask why. Why gets you stuck? Why tends to prevent us from knowing how to respond to awful experiences? Perhaps the better question to ask in the shadow of evil is what? 
What do we do in light of this evil? What effect will I allow this to have on my faith? What can I do to make a difference for Christ and to shine his light in the darkness? What can lead us to a better response? What can lead us to movement? We can choose to respond to difficulty with doubt and disbelief and cynicism, or we can choose to respond in faith and belief and trust in the Lord. And people have struggled with this issue since the great fall of man. And today, we're going to see it again as we continue our study in this book called Ecclesiastes. And God's used this man, this teacher, this preacher in the Hebrew, the Koheleth, to deal with the evils and the difficulties of life. And he uh, uses this teacher, whom many believe to be King Solomon, to basically share with us that in his life, he's done everything there is to do. I have done all that life has to offer. I have possessed all that life has to offer. And in the end, he says it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel. It means like vapor, a mist, a breath. Now, the first week we saw how the teacher revealed a hide-and-seek dynamic with fulfillment. And I shared that fulfillment is, not, is, is found by living for the giver of life, not trying to seek the experiences of life. And last week, Pastor Joe spoke to our desire to control and have answers to all our questions, but realizing that God doesn't typically provide all the answers to those questions. And we have to eventually just come to a place of trusting him because although we see life here, he zooms out, he's got the whole picture, and we don't. And so we must surrender control and trust to the Lord and what I like about this book, which is also what makes this book difficult, is that it's messy. So if you're a messy person, you'll love Ecclesiastes. It's messy. It's not a three steps to happiness kind of book. It's not that kind. It's more like a ride at Cedar Point with the twists and turns and ups and downs of looking at human life and human experiences as, as we experience this life under the sun, as he says. Now today we're going to do a brief survey of chapters 4 through 6. The teacher continues to diagnose our problems and then transition to some vital advice for us, helping us to know what to do with the difficulties in life. And I'll give you a head start. I think if we're going to summarize what we would see in chapters 4, 5, and 6, this is what we would say and this is what we would see. The best way to deal with the awful experiences around us is to surrender to the awesome God above us. That's what I think we're going to find today. Would you pray with me? Father, as we get ready to open your word. We pray for wisdom. God, I pray that any hearts that are hard right now due to difficulties in life, the Lord, you would tenderize those hearts. God, that you would open closed ears and that you would uh, free our minds to hear. Holy Spirit, move freely among us. Convict us where conviction is needed. Affirm us and encourage us where affirmation and encouragement is needed. God, give us ideas of how to deal with the difficulties of life. Give us a what that we can leave with here today. So go before us, we ask in Jesus' name. We all sit together. Amen. Amen. Why don't you open up your Bibles, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one as a gift. You can find one out in the information center on your way out. Everyone else, open up your Bibles or fire up your Bible apps. Here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to look at the first seven verses and then just do some hit and miss through chapters 5 and 6 because a lot of what we're going to see in those three chapters is framed up in the first seven verses of 4. And here's what we see the Koheleth, the teacher, say. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. 
And I thought the dead who already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. All sunshine and rainbows today, guys. The teacher points out several awful experiences and observations about life. Oppression, loneliness, and the elusive satisfaction. Just dissatisfaction at an extreme level. Now, nothing's new under the sun. These grievous experiences take place today. Like when you look at verse 1, he speaks about oppression. He's saying people are being oppressed. They're crying out from their oppression. And all the power is in the hands of the ones who are oppressing them, and they can't do anything about it. And so he's looking at the oppression, and it's grieving him. And we continue to see oppression today in our life and injustice. It exists in the ugliness of racism. It exists in places where women and those in poverty are treated like property. In societies where people are under the thumb of a cruel dictator. Or in a land where people are persecuted for their faith. Or when the rich profit from the poor or hold the poor down and they're denied opportunities and care. And where there's oppression in our homes because uh, men and women and children are living in fear because of an abuser. There's oppression. There's injustice. And when we take off our self-seeking, self-centered, Western American blinders long enough, we'll see it. We'll get glimpses of the plight that so many people in this world endure. The injustices right underneath our noses here in America and around the globe beyond the safety of our homes. There's great oppression and injustice today. We see the headlines. It's getting real here. The teacher's pained by injustice and the evils of the world. They hurt his heart, and they should hurt ours. On top of the oppression, he starts to move into this, this theme of loneliness. Not only are they oppressed, but their loneliness. He says there's no one to help them. There's no one to help these people. In fact, in verse 8, it talks about uh, some people have no heir or no family. And then he, he, he gives us contrast of those who aren't lonely with those who are. It's a popular passage of Scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's interesting. We usually teach it from the context of community which is true, but don't forget the, out, the other side of that is loneliness. And so we look at Ecclesiastes 4.9. It says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Right? This is a good thing. But woe to him who is alone, who has no one to lift him up. And when he falls, he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. This is winter conditions. We understand winter, all right? But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so there's this contrast between those who are in relationship and community, those who are lonely, and the vulnerability that comes with that. And we see this as a significant issue. We need each other. We need relationships. We need community. Loneliness is such an issue, and it's a growing concern, by the way. More and more studies are coming out now saying that there are big issues due to isolation. People are isolating themselves. Just don't look any further than our homes. The, the, the more resources we get, the bigger the homes we get, the, the, the wider our fences are, the more distance we put between ourselves. And so we, we tend to uh, move toward isolation. 
in our context. Also, lack of social connections, face-to-face interaction. Instead, more people are using technology to connect, which isn't bad, but you still have to have the face-to-face connect. And so what a lot of studies are starting to find is that people are starting to suffer from what they're calling chronic loneliness. Chronic loneliness. And they're saying it could be the next public health concern at the same level of obesity and substance abuse because of the isolation. We've got an entire generation or two learning that the primary mode of connection needs to be here, not here. And so we've got chronic loneliness starting to settle in. Now, he gives great advice here in response to loneliness. Get into community. Invest in healthy, godly, supportive relationships. Build strong ties with family. Build strong ties with friends and coworkers because loneliness is painful. Some of you know that pain personally and intimately. That's why we're always saying, get in a life group, get in a life group, get in a life group, get into community. Some of you think, well, that life group didn't go so well. Well, then get into another one. Find one that works. But we need community. So he says, I see oppression. I see loneliness. And then he stacks on top of that this restless dissatisfaction. This is a huge theme through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And he says something very interesting in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says that envy fuels us. It's the one-up syndrome that really envy from our neighbor is what drives us. And so we dress to impress, we drive to impress, we buy to impress, we build to impress. And we have all this endless labor to impress others. We need to be validated by others based on our wealth or our possessions or our accomplishments or our positions. And in the end, it's dissatisfying. Think about how foolish it is for dissatisfied people to try to get validation from dissatisfied people. Talk about crazy. But we still do it. He just says no one's no, no one's off the radar. They're lazy. He says, these people that fold their hands, eat their flesh. You're like, that's kind of gross. What's that mean? The folding of the hands is a sign of laziness. Even the lazy aren't satisfied. The fool who does nothing is destroyed by their unproductive apathy and slothfulness, and they're dissatisfied. He goes to the other extreme. You look at verse 6. The workaholic. The workaholic is never satisfied and destroys himself and everyone around him by killing himself on the hamster wheel of life. Workaholism is terrible because you're too afraid to lose anything, yet you're too busy to enjoy anything. And so workaholics aren't satisfied. And satisfaction isn't just measured in what resources you have, but learning to enjoy what God has provided you, learning contentment and joy and rest. Look at, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 8. It says, One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Some of us are going, been there. Some of you are going, I am there. (laughs) In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he cracks open a little bit more about this wealth and money issue with dissatisfaction. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Notice, He doesn't say those who have money. He doesn't say those who have wealth. He says those who what? Love. People who love money. I love money. I love wealth. Got to have more. Got to have more. Got to have more. This is the people. These are the people he's talking about. Sounds like an echo from 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We've heard that misquoted, right? People have said money is the root of evil. Is that true? Uh, It's the love of money. Got to have it. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith 
and pierced themselves with many a pangs. Why? Because in their dissatisfaction, they went wandering because the grass is always greener. Oh, not there. Grass is always greener. Oh, not there. Oh, more grass. Greener grass must be better. Nope, not there. In this perpetual journey of dissatisfaction. He continues on in Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 3. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy. Now, what a, what a statement. It lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not, what's the word? Satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, meaning no one even came to see him die and be bury him. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. You see how dismal this is? Then it's better off that someone uh, dies or is not even born so that they don't see the oppressions in life. And a stillborn child is better than a person who does so much in life, has everything that they want, but they're not satisfied. This is just a bleak picture. Ecclesiastes 6, 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth. We just devour it. Yet his appetite is never satisfied. The teacher is hammering on this awful observation that no matter how much money or possessions a person has, if they're relying on that wealth to meet their deepest needs and their appetite for fulfillment and satisfaction, it won't happen. It's interesting. Years ago, uh, the Gates Foundation, ironically, funded Boston College's survey of a very rich group of people, people that had fortunes of 25 million or more. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish I was on that list, you know? And they asked them in this pool to share candidly about how the prosperity affected their lives and their thinking. The study was called The Joys and Dilemmas of Wealth. The outcome? Participants were generally a dissatisfied group. Shocker. The novelty of money had worn off, and now it was replaced with anxiety. Anxieties about love and value and relationships and work and family. And they were frequently dissatisfied with their sizable fortunes. And most of them, check this out, most of them still did not consider themselves financially secure. Saying that for, for that to happen, they would probably need to be on average one quarter more wealthy than they currently were. The average fortune of this group of people, averaging them out was $78 million dollars. And they said, I don't feel financially secure. I think I still need about a quarter more. Well, you know what's going to happen if they get the quarter more, right? They're going to need a quarter more. And they're going to need more. And they're going to need more. It doesn't satisfy. And some of you, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Some of you thinking, no, 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 if that was me, I'd be satisfied. Hook me up. And you know what? We'd be the, we'd be the same exact spot. We'd be the same exact spot. Interesting enough. And this is related to the loneliness factor we just saw a minute ago. The participants in the study felt like their relationships had been altered or had become contingent on their wealth. They didn't know who loved them for who they were or for what they had, and they often were plagued with the thought of who would cut them off if they could no longer get something from them. It changed all their relationships. It was just a game changer all through. You know, how do you, how would you like to go to a meal and someone's always thinking, you're going to get the bill? How would you like to be at a holiday where they're thinking, well, this is going to be good because they're rich. They're going to give me something big. And they just realized the expectations and the anxiety that came with wealth were plaguing them. And so dissatisfaction is a grievous evil. And just to make sure 
that you don't get off track here. When the Bible talks about the wealthy, you know it's talking about us, right? When the Bible talks about wealthy, you think, oh yeah, it's all those rich people. It's all those millionaires. No, 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 no. The Bible is talking about us when it talks about wealthy. I hope we know that. Some of you are thinking, man, you haven't seen my paycheck. Let's, let's, just, let's just have a fun little exercise here. Let's just say King Solomon wrote this book. And if you know anything about King Solomon, richest man that ever lived, right? I mean, 13 years, years to build his house, you know, thousands of people, uh, money. He has so much money, he got bored, he just started making stuff. I think I'll just make shields to decorate my walls with, with gold. You know, like, ridiculous. If Solomon all of a sudden were transported for a day with you, what would that look like? If Solomon were to walk around with you, granted, you might not have as big and glamorous and lush of what he had, but he would be amazed. <gasps> is this your chariot? Well, yes, it is my chariot. Where's the horses? Well, there's 200 of them underneath that hood right there. <laughs> 200 horses for this chariot? Wow. And then you take them to your house and you pull into your driveway. <gasps> what a lovely palace you have. Well, yes. Where's your servant that just opened your garage door? Oh, there's no servant. I just press this button and the door opens. <gasps> what kind of magic do you have? <laughs> do you park your chariot in this room? No, my wife parks her chariot in this room. <laughs> because there's not room for my chariot because on the other side of the room are boxes of all my stuff. <laughs> you have all that stuff in those boxes? Yes, and I don't even know what's in those boxes. I have boxes inside of boxes of my stuff. And he looks at you in amazement. Wow. And then you walk him into your house, and the first room he sees is your bathroom. <gasps> what are these lovely silver instruments? Oh, that's called a sink. If I just turn this little lever, water comes out. <gasps> what? You don't have a servant go and get you water? No, I just turn this handle, and water comes out. In fact, watch this. If I turn this handle, the water changes temperature. Oh, this is great magic. Yes. And what is this? Do you drink out of this? <laughs> No, 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 my friend. We don't drink out of that. Everything that my body considers waste goes into that. Well, who cleans it? Oh, no one cleans it. I just lift this little lever like that and poosh. <gasps> Where's it go? It leaves my house and it actually leaves my property. <gasps> what? And then you take him down to your kitchen. And he looks at your kitchen, looks at your pantry and is full of food. He goes, oh, you are very wealthy indeed. You hunt and gather much. Well, sometimes I hunt and gather, and sometimes my wife hunts and gather. Sometimes none of us hunt and gather, and we call for someone to hunt and gather for us. And a teenage boy will bring me something called pizza. You are truly a mighty king, yes. And then he opens your fridge, and all the cold air comes out. What is this? What is this magic? Oh, yes, this keeps all my food cold. You can eat all this food? Probably, but not in one sitting. Well, what do you do after you eat? Ah, I come over to this little box. And what do you do with the box? I turn it on. What is it? It's a painting that moves. What? Yes, in fact, I have 700 paintings in this box that move. Well, let's watch your paintings. Yes, we shall sit and watch the paintings. Well, the paintings, we won't be able to see them when it gets dark. Oh, my ignorant friend. I just go over to this wall and I turn the switch and daylight comes into my home. What? How do you do these things? Oh, it's just the way it is here, my friend. And what happens if all of a sudden it gets cold? Oh, my friend. I just go over to the wall and I just press this button and either the sun comes into my room or a gentle breeze. Truly, you are a great master. Do we really know how good we have it? 
Do you even know how good we have, how wealthy we are? In case we forget, half of the world's population, over 3 billion people, live on less than 250 a day. More than 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty, less than $1.25 a day. Half of one of our coffee drinks would feed someone for a day. We're so wealthy. More than 750 million people lack access to clean drinking water. And we have multiple faucets. We flush our waste with clean water. We're so wealthy. A quarter of humans live without electricity. 805 million people worldwide don't have enough food to eat. And yet one of the most common phrases echoed in an American home when we open our pantries and refrigerators is there's nothing to eat. One billion children worldwide are living in poverty. And according to UNICEF, 22,000 children die every day due to poverty. So before we get confused, when the Bible says wealthy, the bullseye is on us, is it not? We're wealthy. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It's those who what? Love wealth. So to sum up the teacher so far, we've got pain without relief, loneliness without care, wealth without enjoyment, work without satisfaction, questions without answers, awful experiences. Now, sure, the teacher says, get some friends, learn to enjoy what you have. Those are a couple good what's in the mix. But in Ecclesiastes 5, we see the major what. What do we do with all this? Well, what does Koheleth do? In all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5 has the most concentrated use of the word God in the whole thing. And they're found in the first seven verses. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. And when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. And I'd love for you to read this last part with me. But God is the one you must fear. What do we do with all the awful news around us? We've got to surrender to the awesome God above us. And here it says fear. Fear is the Hebrew word yare. It means to stand in awe, to have fear, to have reverence, honor, astonishment, jaw-dropping. When's the last time you felt awe for God? Remember those feelings when you were a kid and you knew you were in trouble and your dad came home or your mom came home and there was this healthy respect of who they were and what they were capable of? Or maybe it was that intimidating visit to the principal's office because you know they had the power to, to do something unpleasant in your life. Or maybe it was the boss calling you. And we, don't see, we know that God is more loving than those examples in some cases, but there's this healthy respect and awe. When's the last time you felt that for God? 
This is God. Like we came in here today to be in awe of God, to lift him up and to worship him. We didn't come here to go, all right, God, what you got for me? Better be good because, you know, I got an hour. After that, it's my time. We came in here and go, God, we're going we're to worship you. When, you. when we go out those doors, does it leave? No, we, we worship in awe of our God. And so we see this description of one who approaches God in fear and awe, one who guards their steps. They're not walking klutzy. They're not, they're not just sauntering in. They're not stomping in. They're guarding their steps when coming to God's presence. They're not strolling in. And they're deliberate but humble. Instead of just you know, yappy, 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 chit-chat, chit-chat. No, no, no. You don't speak carelessly or hastily or rashly in our prayer life in the presence of God. We don't make flippant vows and commitments. Oh, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Like, we got to take it to heart. We're told here it's better to listen than to open our mouth and sin with careless words, dishonest words, many words. You know, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, wrote in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. See, it's God who's in heaven, not us. We are under the sun. All that we see happens under the sun, but he's above the sun, yet he loves and knows and cares for everything that happens under the sun. And so if you have a high view of God then it will address most of your struggles with evil in this world. If God is smaller to you, then you will feel the freedom to be more argumentative with God. Let me just run that by you one more time. If you have a high view of God, you're going to have a degree of peace. It will, you'll hurt, you'll struggle, you'll feel frustrated, you'll feel confused, but you have a high degree of peace with the evils in this world. But if you've got a small view of God, you will feel the freedom to argue with God. And what happens is when we don't have a high view of God, and we're not off-field, we start to get it backwards. We start to act like God was created for us rather than we were created for him. We start to act like God is accountable to us rather than us being accountable to God. Every person will stand before God and give an account. If we don't have a high view of God, if we don't look at him with awe, if we're not off-field, then we start to think that God has to answer to us rather than we have to answer to God. And we get it backwards. We start to say, how can God be so loving when bad things happen? How can God be kind if bad things happen? Is God really in charge of this world? Because it doesn't look like it. And those are fair questions. We understand why we do that, but they're dangerous questions. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Powerful verse. Whatever has come to be has already been named. God already knows what's happening, guys. And it is known what man is. God knows every day of your life what's going to happen. And that he, man, is not able to, what's the word? Dispute with one stronger than he. You know what that says? We, the creation, do not dispute with the creator. That's what's being said here. We don't contend with the Lord. We don't dispute with him. We surrender to him. We yield to him. We, God, listen, God will remedy all the wrongs of this world in his timing, in his way, on his day. Nothing of injustice, nothing related to oppression and pain will not go unchecked in the day of the Lord. In fact, Ecclesiastes 5.8, it says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, 
and there are yet higher ones over them. I've heard a couple other pastors here at this pulpit say, God's in charge of those in charge. And those in charge will one day give an account to the one in charge. That day is coming. You know, if you were to hit rewind, you go back to Ecclesiastes 3, and there's this season for everything um, that uh, Pastor Joe took us through last week. And in verses 16 and 17, teacher says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Man, I went to the courthouse, there was wickedness. I went to the temple, there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. God's going to settle accounts. And as the teacher surveys the world around him and sees oppression and injustice and loneliness and dissatisfaction, he instructs us to still come to God with reverence and worship and to trust and stand in awe of him. We have to trust God by surrendering to him, finding our peace by trusting him and waiting on him. It's too easy to give in to rashly approaching God with careless words, accusatory words, and we forget to be in awe of the Lord. God, with all that's happening in this world, where were you? Why didn't you do something? You know what? He can easily flip the table and say, no, where were you? In fact, he did that once with a guy named Job, right? Job was not happy with what he was going through. And he started complaining and questioning God. He kind of forgot his place. For those of you that have teenagers, you know that experience. You just, what did you just say? You clearly forgot who you're talking to in this moment. Job had that on a mega level. Job 38.4, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job 40, verses 1 through 5, the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job did answer He says, behold, I'm of small account. (laughs) What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. You know what Job said? Oops. Spoke too soon. Spoke a little too brave. Not that we can't bring our pain and bring our cares and lay them at, yes, but it's the tone, it's the attitude, it's the trust or the lack of trust. You know, for five chapters, God gives Job a stern, verbal reminder of who he was questioning, that he temporarily forgot his place. At the end of this, you know what Job said? In Job 42.6, he says, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job surrendered. Job surrendered. He says, the answers to my questions are way, way, way above my pay grade. I just need to surrender and trust. You know, not only can God say to us, where were you, in the way that he said it to Job, but if we find ourselves saying to God, God, the sex trafficking issues, the the poverty, the injustice, the oppression, where were you? Why didn't you do anything? He can turn the tables and say, oh yeah? You care about these things, huh? Where were you? You can say, where were you when people in your city and your world were suffering from hunger and poverty and oppression and wars and hopelessness? Where were you? Where were you when little babies were being murdered and women with unplanned pregnancies were feeling conflicted and confused? And where were you when millions of orphans needed a home? Where were you when millions of people around the world weren't, uh, were trapped in a false religion and they didn't know of me and they didn't have a missionary or a Bible or maybe no one inviting them over to their home for a meal? Where were you when teenagers in your town were being abused and abandoned and neglected and bullied and tempted by drugs and alcohol and sex? 
Where were you when the prisoner and the drug addicted and the grieving and the emotionally oppressed and depressed needed hope and needed encouragement? Where were you when women and girls were being forced into sex slavery and trying to get out? God could easily make a case saying, oh, these are important issues to you? Did you bring it to me? Where were you and what were you doing about them? In fact, when's the last time you prayed about them? If God answered all your prayers today, would the world change or would just your world change? We have a high God, a lofty God. He sits enthroned above the earth. He sees, he knows, he's dealing with it. The day's coming. But we can't play these games like, where were you, God? He's going, well, where were you? You care about it? What were you doing? I, I was preoccupied with things that were important to me. You've got to get it straight. Evil, injustice, pain, they do not weigh and measure God. They weigh and measure us. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7. We get a little bit of a why to go with the what. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're weighed and sifted by hardship. It penetrates the deep places to say, what do we really believe? How much do we really trust? Will we be faithful? And don't forget, God knows firsthand about the ugliness of this world. Don't forget what he did out of his love for us. Jesus came. He experienced oppression and injustice and loneliness in his life and ministry. Think of his arrest Think of the disciples fleeing from him. Think of the false trials. Think of the beatings. Think of his crucifixion. Why? Why did Jesus endure those things? Because he was dissatisfied. He was dissatisfied at the thought of you and me not having the opportunity to be forgiven for our sins. Not having a chance to be made right with God. He came and firsthand experienced all of that on the cross so that he could make a way for us. I don't know about you, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It's, it's not right. It's injustice that Jesus died for me. Those were my sins. Those were my wrongdoings. But he took it. We're big fans. Wave that flag of injustice. Let's not forget the greatest injustice with our Savior. Out of love. Out of love to make a way. We need to come to the cross. We need to look at the resurrection. We need to look at the power that Jesus demonstrates over all these things. And one day, he's going to reconcile. You know, this whole series is called Pursuit of Purpose. We actually live out our purpose when we surrender and trust God despite difficulty. Because our purpose is to glorify God. And to glorify God in the midst of suffering is a light that shines brighter than the light of glorifying God in prosperity. That brings contrast. You know, I think about that young man named Brandon that I buried 18 years ago and the dark cloud that came over our community because of that situation. And there were people greatly suffering. But you know what? People decided to surrender to God and trust him despite that. I saw friends of this young man. I saw family members of this young man cling to Christ. I saw them start to love on people that were hurting and crying out. And because of the love of Christ in them and through them, we saw teenagers come to Christ. 
We saw people uh, grow in their faith. They just chose to surrender and trust. Will you surrender and trust the Lord today in the face of whatever great evils you are aware of? The best way to deal with awful experiences around us is to surrender to the awesome God above us. If you're a believer, what that means for you is that you need to align yourself with Christ. You need to, you need to stay in awe of him. We grow cold, we grow lukewarm, and we forget it's God. And so we need to not only hold him in awe and be awe-filled, but we need to see how we can live for his kingdom. This kingdom's coming. We're building it now. How are you building God's kingdom? Are you on the bench or are you in the game? So easy to sit on the bench and go, well, you should have done that, should have done that. God's called us to be on the field doing his work. How are you doing that? It makes a difference in this world. If you don't know Christ today, you need to surrender to Christ. You need to surrender to this one who loves you and one day will reconcile all things. He'll give you a new life now, eternal life now. I want to invite you into that to surrender ultimately to the one who loves you. Now, in chapter five here, it says that when you draw nearer to the house of God, to come listening before speaking. I want to invite us into that moment as we close out here. I want to invite you just to listen. We don't do this enough. I want to give you guys about 60 seconds or so just to reflect on what you've heard, what you've read, what the Lord's spoken to your heart, what he's said to you from his word, and process what he's telling you your next step will be today because of what you've heard. So I invite you to pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're just going to enter into a time of prayer here together. Where do you need to be aligned with Christ? Where do you need to surrender? Where have you had the audacity to question God? Where do you need to trust him? What do you need to do because you trust him? Father, we confess that there are times when we are filled with doubt and we're discouraged by headlines. We're discouraged and hurt by the pain we see in the lives of people we know and love. Frustrated by pain in our own lives. And Father, we confess that there are times when we come to you and we forget our place. Lord, we know that you want us to come and cry out to you. We come and bear our heart. But Lord, help us to do it with awe. Help us to not lose our place. Help us to surrender to you and yield to you, even as our Savior did. Not your will be done. Not my will be done, but your will be done. That's the cry of our heart. Help us to align to you, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that whatever adjustment needs to happen in their life today, Lord, that they do it with faithfulness, that they surrender. Lord, I pray for the, any man or woman or boy and girl in this room or watching online right now that needs you, that's never invited you into life, that their sin is so evident, that their lack of having you and knowing you is so evident, but they're ready to believe. And if that's you today, I just want to lead you in a prayer. It's not the prayer, it's not the words, it's not me, it's just a guide, it's a map for your heart. It's on the screens. If you want to follow, you can say, Lord Jesus, today I surrender to you. I confess that I'm a sinner. I've contributed to the awful experiences of this life. I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of resisting you. I come to you in belief right now, believing that you love me, 
You died on the cross and you rose from the grave so that I can be forgiven. I commit my life to follow you and out of all of you, join the work to build your kingdom on earth until you return from heaven or call me home. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. As you prepare to leave today, we're, gonna, we're just going to worship for a while. We're not, we're not heading out the doors yet. We're going to just linger and worship for a little bit. As a believer in Christ, I just ask that you lay down whatever barrier you walked in here with that's keeping you from trusting God, surrendering to God in your life. If, you're, if you profess faith today, your next step is to take that response card that's in your program and just rip it off and mark, I gave my life to Christ. Turn it into the baskets that come around shortly. And we're going to just want to get in touch with you and tell you how to follow up with this new relationship with Jesus. But I'll tell you what, guys, the best way to deal with awful experiences around us is to surrender to the awesome God above us. Amen? Let's stand. Let's worship together.